Welcome to the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for joining us today as we discuss biblical and theological issues relating to life and ministry. This podcast is a ministry of Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota. To learn more about Central Seminary, visit our website at www.centralseminary.edu. My name is Jared, and I'll be your host. We are back with another episode of the Central Seminary Podcast. We have again Dr. Preston Mays, one of the Old Testament profs, the main Old Testament prof here at Central Seminary. Welcome back, Dr. Mays. Oh, thanks. Great to be back here. So we're talking Job, and before we get into uh, the, the the plan for today, I, I thought maybe it would be helpful to ask you, what are some of the best resources that come to mind that you've used or read on the book of Job, whether it be a commentary or other sort of uh, material? Yeah. As far as commentaries would go, I think there'd probably be three that I would recommend. If you're looking for something a little briefer, just kind of an overview of the book, um, Francis Anderson's commentary on Job I found pretty helpful. Uh, John Walton's also is a more recent commentary on Job that, that's pretty helpful without getting into too much depth. If you want something more, you know, exegetical, probably John Hartley's commentary is the one I would recommend. So those are three really good commentaries. Um, two other books that, that I've actually used when I've taught the class, um, Leighton Talbert wrote Beyond Suffering. Mm-hmm. Just a really good, helpful overview of the Book of Job that students have really appreciated through the years. And uh, one other book, a little more recent and much more relevant, I suppose, to the specific issue we're talking about here in God and his battle with evil, so to speak, is uh, Eric Ortland's Piercing Leviathan. Mm, I've heard so of you'll it. You'll recognize the, the reference there to Leviathan in the toward the end of Job, chapter 40 or 41, whatever it is, 41, um, I believe it is. Um, <clears throat> it just does a good job kind of talking through the book and then really majors on on those two chapters. Um, I, I would make one little adjustment to the way he argues a part of it, but overall the book is very helpful. Okay. And I found it really, really thought-provoking. All right. Thanks for uh, for sharing those with us today. Today we're going to focus on Job's friends, lessons from his friends. Uh, you, you've entitled it, How Not to Imply Scripture, Pitfalls for the Pastor, Counselor, and Devotional Bible Reader. So that's where we're heading today. That's... So we we go through the story, the narrative, and we mm-hmm. see the these friends, three or four of his friends, and three of them kind of follow some some similar patterns, and we're going to, you're going to unpack those for us today. And the, these guys, are, are, are we going to say that they probably have good intentions? I think they definitely have good intentions. They want to help Job. I think we would probably also conclude they're generally pretty good men. They do seem to be convinced theists, mm-hmm. um, believers in the same God as us. So, yes. Good. Okay. And we see them trying to unpack what's happening with Job and giving kind of their 
their perception of what's going on. Uh, And and we want to get into, was there an underlying belief system or way of viewing the world, whether you call it worldview, moral imagination, whatever term you use, or theology that led them to some of the conclusions that we see in relation to Job and his suffering and why this was happening to to him? There definitely is. Um, what they are all believing to be true to one degree, well, to, to, a, to an extreme degree, really, is sometimes called retribution theology. Um, that's, to, to put it simply, that's the idea that you inevitably reap what you sow right here in the here and now and rather quickly. Um, Walton's commentary has a pretty good discussion of this in his introduction, so I'll, I'll just quote him briefly. He says, Retribution theology is the conviction that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer, both in proportion to their respective righteousness and wickedness. Um, having a worldview in which God was absolutely just and compelled to maintain the res- uh, retribution principle developed the inevitable converse corollary, which affirmed that those who prospered must be righteous and those who suffered must be wicked. So, and I think it's probably helpful that we just say right up front, we would all agree that there's probably a general connection between righteousness and and how you're doing in the world. Mm-hmm. But that is by no means absolute. And God often, for various reasons, chooses to do otherwise in the lives of believers um, as his prerogative for reasons he finds best. Um so again, it's a general connection um, that, w- that we would we would say exists, but they're calling it an absolute connection. It's almost like a th- theistic version of a karma doctrine, mm-hmm. such as we're familiar with from Eastern societies. Okay, so that's their theology. So these guys are they're kind of consistent. If that's mm-hmm. their theology, they're consistent with their their beliefs. Do you you think we can learn anything about our theology and how we do theology from what we see them practicing? I think we can. And by the way, it's probably helpful to say right up front, this is the theology that Job held to as well. And he seems to think that it should explain the way God manages the world. That's part of the reason, I think, that he's been so careful to maintain his righteousness. Okay. If you're always making sure you're, you're, you're keeping short accounts with God, as we might say, dealing with your sins right away, or not sinning to begin with, then... God has no reason to, to do anything about you because you're pleasing to him. Um, so they all hold this. Now, I think the lesson for us and that they're going to have to learn as well is the, the old idea that many good theological truths need to be held in tension mm. um, with each other. I mean, maybe one of the, the obvious examples here is Christology. Uh, we talked about that at some length in one of the recent episodes yeah, on Trinitarianism. We talked about was, the tension, yeah. too. And it's true. Christ is fully human and fully divine, one person with two completely unconfused natures and however else um, the creeds specifically uh, articulate that. Scripture definitely teaches that. Um, and, of course, it did take a long time for theologians to synthesize that doctrine and really make it complete. Not until Council of Chalcedon in 451 is kind of the definitive Christology issued. Um, so the issue w- was eventually worked through, and and so that's 
that's an example. Um, and even though, of course, you know, that statement is there and everyone should know, you still have examples in the world of people who have really heretical Christologies, I suppose most obvious being Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and so forth. But, um, so that happens there, but let's not just to, you know, to make the application to them. I think often we end up having that kind of problem too because Scripture is not an impossibly hard book, but it is a long book, and there is a complexity to it. So I think what we practically do is we develop our own personal understanding of theology kind of in stages, Mm -hmm. and we may very much latch on to one element of theology and start living our lives based on that, and it'll work until such time as we realize my understanding of that truth in Scripture is incomplete. And um, so the challenge is to realize we're probably going to have to grow in our understanding to some degree. Um, again, in the, you know, the major creeds on these major issues, they kind of keep us from falling off the rails, so mm-hmm. to speak. So it's a good thing to have those in mind. But I think most people probably aren't reading those and probably aren't thinking about it very much, yeah. and they're just operating on their own practical understanding. So probably we... We exhibit this kind of process here all the time ourselves mm-hmm. without yeah. even realizing it. Yeah, it, it's easy to do. And we like to have things uh, neat, and we like to resolve all the tensions. Oh, for, and For every complicated issue, there's a nice, neat, tidy answer that makes sense to people and probably is wrong. Yeah. Not always. Sometimes they are tidy, but um, when we get into matters of theology, it's, it's often a little bit... A little untidy sometimes. The truth and tension idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So we have the four friends, but three kind of follow a, a similar pathway of uh, kind of, if you almost think, you know, an order of operations of mm-hmm. how, how to get to where where Job is and how to, how to give an answer mm-hmm. for what's going on in Job's life. And they think they all have it figured out. Can you uh, can you walk us through that and help us understand the, the strategies that each of these guys employed and kind of mm-hmm. trying to figure out what was going on with Job? Sure. Again, as you said, they all hold to this theology, and they're saying that this is the answer to Job's plight, which means all you have to do is repent, do the right thing, and you will be restored. Um, now, Eliphaz is the first of the friends to speak, and his argumentative strategy starts with kind of a proverbial wisdom idea here. In chapter 4, he talks about his observations, and he, he talks about the law of sowing and reaping, honestly, which is a very familiar concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but he states it in very absolute terms. Uh, the Hebrew verb forms he uses suggest that this is always the way that this operates. But then he backs it up by his own personal observations. Um, He talks about how by the the evil, once they have sowed their evil, by the blast of God's anger, they're consumed. Okay, that that kind of imagery of God's anger being a blast is used elsewhere in Scripture, so it's very scriptural. It sounds good, doesn't it? Um, For example, Isaiah 30, 33 uses the same image to talk about the king of Assyria. God has provident, has stacked the wood under him. The pyre is already set. Mm. Just with the ble- the breath and the blow of God, it, it'll leap into flame, which historically really did happen to a great degree. Assyria fell, and mighty was the fall thereof, mm-hmm. as we might 
should say. Um, he also talks about the, 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 the young lion being broken, you know, even the teeth of the young lion. Again, Psalm 58 used that same imagery to talk about the fangs of the young lion being broken. So it, it all sounds very scriptural for those who are well-versed in scripture, um, even though uh, ultimately it isn't. Now, verse, uh, the second part of this thing, he recounts this personal vision that he's had. Um, and, and it's very funny to read through it. He talks about how it came, if you read it in chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, he talks about it in such solemn terms. It was you know, at night when everything was quiet. A voice came to me in, in private, and it whispered very low. Made him afraid. He talks about almost getting goosebumps, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> then the vision is revealed to him. And in chapter four, verse seventeen, supposed vision that human frailty precludes the notion of one being righteous before God. And he says, "Well, God puts no trust in his servants, and he charges angels with errors. How much more man?" So. You know, immediately he we ask the question, well, did he really have a vision here? You know, people all the time in this day and age <laughs> say, God told me to do such yeah. and such when he did no such thing. That's what I was thinking when you well, start describing this. I mean, how many times do we have something in our lives well, that we're going through and someone comes to us and say, well, I had this experience and, and God told me or I felt God, you know, and has their own yeah. personal vision, so to speak. The only thing that's certain is, I, I will concede, he had this experience. But, you know, and in that dispensation at that time, might he have actually had some sort of revelation? It's possible. It does seem that commentators are kind of divided over where the vision might end and where his commentary on it might start. Okay. So let's just concede the point you had some sort of vision. God told you something possible i wouldn't really opt for that i think you know it's more likely he's dreaming mm -hmm. you know we all have goofy dreams that you wake up and you wonder where was my mind going Why, you know, <laughs> uh, crazy stuff because he does suggest for example he doesn't put trust in his servants and even seems to charge angels maybe in there with with errors well i think god does you know clearly he does judge demons but um, if you're going to just talk, I, I don't know that Eliphaz is making that distinction. Does God trust angels with quite a few things in Scripture that are important? Well, it sure seems like it to me. Mm -hmm. They were involved in the destruction of Sodom. Um, Gabriel makes announcements regarding the birth of, uh, of the Messiah, John the Baptist. Uh, you know, all these things are, are significant um, tasks in, in my view. But, so he's got, but, but in him, in his mind, okay, I've got this vision and there's some general proverbial wisdom. And then he just looks at the real world observations he see, and these are correct. He talks about how the wicked people, um, are, are, are often judged. Um, and that's true. They there often is a price to pay in this world for our sinful behaviors. And, and it's a very well-crafted, argument is very metaphorical, very picturesque. Um, so based on all this, his solution is to emphasize God's power, 
you know, you can't resist God. He can do anything. So it's very orthodox. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he implores God to <clears throat> seek, Job to seek God as the solution and you will be delivered. Which is the second mistake he's making, or maybe the third. He is promising something he cannot deliver. If you're a counselor or a pastor or even just a friend, hopefully you very soon figure out that I better be careful what I promise people God will or will not do for them. Yeah, that's a really good point. Do do I have a Bible reason for this? Um, uh, You know, I I suppose there's any number of applications of this. I can make them some promise. If, If somebody is going through a very, very hard time, can I promise them based on scripture that God will not permit this to get worse, to be worse of a temptation than you can handle? Yes, you can. I think you can biblically promise them that. Can I promise you that God will be there at your aid to help you somehow, some way, if you call on him? Yes. Can I promise you that the thing is going to be resolved on a certain timetable or even in the way you want? No. I think our hearts grieve for those who are dealing with some lifelong issue that probably isn't going to get any better. Mm. And all we can say in those instances is we, we can be there for people. We can walk with them through it. But don't lay out some sort of plan to get better. Beside, you know, maybe doing some basic things, there's almost always something you can do to help somebody, right? Mm-hmm. But can you really make, but can you do the thing they want you to do most to make the problem go away? Usually not. That's in, in, in God's hands. So he's promising things he can't deliver based on a nice, neat, tidy scriptural packaging that's just yeah. wrong. And I think that's a great observation for us, you know, even thinking of Central Seminary and some of our biblical counseling programs. Yeah. If we, you view these guys as, as almost like a biblical counselor, they're mm-hmm. doing some things they probably shouldn't. Yeah. And that's an area we need to be yeah. careful not to give false hope or false promises or to, to say something's mm-hmm. going to happen that we really mm-hmm. don't have control over. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and that's very true because though they're talking about one specific theological issue, we talk about all kinds of similar theological issues. And usually very much at the heart of the question is, why is God allowing this? Why is he doing this to me? Yep. And um, so, yes, they're a good model not to follow, I suppose. <laughs> so let's let's move to uh, Bildad, the next guy here. Mm-hmm. He kind of takes some of we've heard already and and builds on it a little bit yeah Yeah, again the same the theology is the same but the argument differs a little he talks about these principles being time honored and tested so it's the ancient wisdom idea Mm -hmm. and he everyone knows everyone this we've (laughs) always believed this way Um, and he uses some nifty word pictures to prove the point here um he talks about the quickly wilting papyrus. You know, as soon as the water dries up, papyrus will wilt. You know, it'll be stately there, standing in the water, uh, in the ditch, and then it's gone. He talks about the spider's web. You know, it's over there in the corner, and well, if your if your wife is like anything like mine, as soon as she sees that spider web in the corner, it is gone quickly. <laughs> um, or a, a, another illustration of a vine. So he uses the illustrations, and I think sometimes we run into the problem of 
thinking we've given a nifty illustration or an engaging illustration, and that has proved the point. I don't think illustrations probably prove a lot of these points in most cases. They demonstrate what you mean. They aid in understanding. Um, and Bildad has succeeded in doing nothing other than prove and demonstrating how judgment is might come very quickly, almost without warning, um, in the same way that a spider's web might be quickly gone. Judgment might come quickly on a person. And um, a, a lot of illustrations, I think, run into these problems. We've talked about Trinitarianism. One of the early analogy when I, when I first started learning some theology, one of the analogies that was out there was, uh, which actually the teacher rejected right up front, which is good. I didn't have that in my thinking, was to liken the theology, the, the the Trinity to a three-piece suit, hmm. which you know th- that kind of makes sense. It's three parts of one whole thing, and yet it's a horrible illustration of the Trinity. <laughs> the three things function different differently, and they're incomplete. They're thir- thirds of a part. That's not the way the Trinity. Uh, is to be sure. Um, so a lot of times illustrations become easily remembered and something somebody can latch on to that we need to be careful we understand the the actual truth there. Okay. So that was Bildad's strategy. Um, Zophar's another one altogether. Remember maybe sometime early, in, it was, for me it was my freshman year of college, we studied all these logical fallacies mm-hmm. straw man arguments yep. and post hoc and red herring and red herring and all. Well, Zophar is, uses quite a few of them when you think through it. For one thing, he's, he's argumenting, argument, arguing uh, in, in a straw man kind of fashion. Um, it's just one little detail in the wording. I think that's probably pretty significant here. Job, Job ref, keeps repeat, referring to himself as being blameless. Okay? And I would say what Job means there is probably the same thing that the New Testament has in mind with pastoral qualifications that uh, you know pastors must be blameless, right? We all understand that doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. Mm-hmm. That means a good testimony before all, a vibrant Christian walk with the Lord. Uh, but when Zophar <clears throat> launches into Job, he begins by saying, well, Job, you claim to be spotless. He uses a different word which suggests more of that absolute righteousness. Um, he also denies some legitimate observations made by Job. You know, if you're in an argument with people, probably both sides of the argument are at least partly correct. But I think you can get to the point where you feel, if I concede a little bit to this other person, it might cause him to be emboldened or cause him to think he's right about everything. So I can't do that. So there's no meaning of meaning halfway here. No, you know, Job, you've you've got maybe a point here. He's still thinking in very black and white terms. And finally, the worst case, the worst part of it all is he's engaging what I would call a special pleading kind of argumentation. Special pleading just asks for special considerations for your argument that you will not allow for anyone else's argument. So, for example, in chapter eleven. He basically argues God's ways are beyond Job's ability to understand. So, Job, you can't understand. God is transcendent. So you can't understand him. Just trust me then. <laughs> well, wait a second. If 
my, the thing that immediately comes to my mind is, okay, if God is transcendent and Job can't understand him, then so far what makes you think you understand him any better? Isn't it possible you're wrong about something as well? And in the end, that's quite correct, isn't it? That yes. was the answer. He needed a, a healthy dose of God's transcendence as well. So I think we would see this played out. Whenever anybody says in an argument that's kind of reaching an impasse, well, just trust me on this. <laughs> I think, you know, that, that's probably a good answer to give to your five-year-old son who's not ready to understand something. Mm-hmm. Maybe even your 12-year-old son. I, I, at some point during the teenage years, I don't think that works so well anymore. And the question sometimes maybe are rebelliously motivated, but I think they're often motivated by I just need to know what's your reason. So in some cases, you might, as a parent, get asked that, and instead of saying, well, just trust me, what you need to say is, you know, that's a good question. I need to get a better answer than I've got for that, which does require me to work. And <clears throat> but, but it's necessary. We've got to do it. So those are the, the three um, examples okay. there, and I think all those things are errors we would make. So, and they're, what they're presenting works, in a sense, if Job wasn't sinless, if Job was being punished for, uh, for his evil, a lot of what they say, you know, worked. He had done something, and, you know, if there was that retribution mindset, if their worldview was accurate, it would, it would work. But uh, Job is called blameless. Uh, he, he, he's, yeah. he's called sin- sinless here. Um, that there wasn't anything he was being punished for. Uh, how does that reality disrupt their worldview that they had and maybe even disrupt the way we tend to think about uh, a cause and effect relationship between what we do and what happens to us? Yeah. Probably it was their experience. They probably had been blessed and they were probably pretty righteous men. So it worked for them. They just hadn't been confronted personally yet with a situation where it didn't work for them. Mm. And in their own minds, I'm sure they would chalk up anything bad that happened to anybody to, well, you've done this, that, or the other thing wrong in your life. And so I think what they had was a big paradigm that they were structuring the world based on. And and we all kind of do this, don't we? Um, If you look at life, isn't it a pretty complicated thing? How do you make sense of all the data coming at you? And most of us will get a big paradigm that we sift all that, uh, that data through to try to deal with things. And, and, and practically speaking, this does often work reasonably well. For example, when I came to Central here, <clears throat> I was coming to a new, a, a new institution. We have a learning management system that you know, gives students computer access to assignments and keeps the grade book and all that kind of thing. And... Um, that was going to be a new system. It was different than where I'd been teaching before. But I, I walked in there thinking, okay, I know what the old system will do. I'm guessing this system will probably do most of that as well. So I just started from that. The differences were pretty minimal. They were there. I had it figured out very quickly um, because I had a paradigm to work with. So practically, we do that. Um, other times, however... And keep in mind, the situations are so similar. Educational institutions all probably realize 
that a learning management system needs to do certain kind of things. Mm -hmm. So they design it in that way. Um, though a computer program seems relatively complicated to those who are not you know, technicians or programmers, the end user all wants the same thing. And that's what they're all providing or they wouldn't be in business. Practically speaking, that works. Other times it doesn't if you run into a new set of experiences. I had kind of a years ago kind of a weird situation happened that illustrated this well. Okay. I don't know much about cars and their engines, but I do know something. And most of what I've learned through the years has been <clears throat> from dealing with this, the problems we would have during summer vacations with my father's boat. It's actually getting kind of old now. It's like 40 years old plus. And so through the years, we've seen a lot of things go wrong. And um, <clears throat> it's when you've seen a lot of things go wrong and then you have something else go wrong this summer, you tend to start figuring out, or you want to, you want to figure out what's wrong. So you try to filter that through your known experience. So one summer, the, the thing was running horribly rough toward the end of the, the summer. And so here we are, we are the, the three of us standing there trying to figure out what might be wrong with this older engine. It's got a carburetor, but it's not fuel injected. Um, and it's, it's a marine engine, so there's some differences there between a car engine. And it's running rough. Well, through the years, we've had ignition problems because there's water in there and things never really dry out. So starter problems are pretty common, um, alternator problems sometimes. So my dad, that was primary in his thinking. His first thought was, well, we've got a problem with that. The electronic systems, the starting system, ignition system. Um, my cousin's husband had a truck that was older and it had a carburetor too. And he had had a, a problem with it and was running very rough. So he cleaned the carburetor that fixed the problem. So his <laughs> solution was, well, let's fix the carburetor. For me, I remember years ago, uh, the thing broke a valve spring and, uh, bent a push rod. It's an old enough engine to have a push rod and, um, <clears throat> man, it ran terrible. Well, that's what I thought we had again. So we didn't know, and it was the last day when this problem happened. So, well, we're going to take it to a mechanic anyway, and he's going to pull this thing apart, and we'll know exactly what's wrong. As it all turns out, we were all wrong, not surprisingly. <laughs> um, basically, the problem had started like 10 years ago. My dad had had some work done to the engine, and they had installed non-marine parts, mm. which, you know, it's a marine engine, so there's no antifreeze in it. Um, so the parts are more likely to corrode mm. in the presence of water, and that is what had happened. So basically, you had water eventually leaking into a cylinder. So, of course, it was going to run rough. But you can't take the one symptom of a problem. The engine is running rough and automatically say the solution is always the same. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the kind of thing that happens in life as well. It's more complex uh, than we want to make it. Um, and in, in, you know, in, the, in our case, the mechanic was going to tell us this is what's wrong. In most theological issues, that doesn't happen. Now, the friends are ultimately going to be told by God, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. um, 
if God is not going to come and directly address your issue, then a lot of times people need an overwhelming amount of information to be convinced that some theological position is wrong. So when you think about Job's friends and uh, the interplay there and what we've talked about so far, can you draw some specific applications for us uh, for for today? How can we apply this maybe to some scenarios or specifics in our lives? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are some definite applications. Perhaps the most um, obvious one is you've still got a retribution theology type doctrine in 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 some traditional societies, India, and I think even some African societies have talked to African students where this thinking seems to predominate. Um, if, you're, if you are an unsaved person living in that culture with a polytheistic worldview, retribution theology explains evil very well. In fact, if you are a polytheist, you'd almost expect evil because good and evil are part of the fabric of the universe. Um, there was no fall. Good and evil really are just made into the universe. Um, so you expect it. Um, <clears throat> but even a believer, I think, in that kind of culture would probably struggle with retribution-type thinking. They know the Lord, but that cultural influence might be so strong that, that they haven't identified yet erroneous thinking that they've got. And you'll hear stories anecdotally in, in churches in some of these cultures where people are still thinking very much that way. And so that would be directly relevant to you, the book of Job. Um, and I, but I think even in the West, we might struggle with that kind of thinking on our, on, on, on a, to a degree, mm -hmm. in a different way. Um, in our world, atheism will be the more likely temptation. And if you recall last week's episode, we talked about how um, several people have either walked away from the faith or you know, become agnostics um, because they just couldn't logically think their way through how an, the omnipotent and all-powerful God could create this version of a universe and, and keep sustaining it for now thousands of years. Um, <clears throat> but even if you're not falling into the temptations of atheism, I think, again, Western Modern believers might still have this own, their own softened version of this problem. If you think about our cultural influences in the United States, we, we live pretty well, don't we? Technology solves problems. You know, good old American ingenuity and know-how and hard work really does make our lives run more smoothly. And so we can start to think life should be like that in general, that we should be able to solve most problems relatively quickly. And I think we also, without, re without realizing we're doing it, think that God kind of deserves to give us a break. Mm. I mean, you know, we figured out the truth. We accept the fact that the kingdom is coming, that, that Jesus is, is Lord, that he is who he says he is. And... Shouldn't life go a little better for us? And indeed, I would say life will go better for us. The next life. Mm -hmm. um, that's where the, God will fully deal with the evil problem. For now, I think the better thing to say is there are you know, tokens of God's blessing along the way. 
Um, if I am living according to the proverbial type wisdom, these men all espouse, I will avoid self-inflicted wounds. As I always like to think, it's never a virtue to shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> but that only allows you to eliminate one type of problem. And God may have good reasons why he allows you to um, to suffer hardship. In fact, sometimes he leads believers into hardship. Job is an extreme example of that. But I think for all of us, it, it's probably good that God, well, it definitely is good in his providence that this, this happens. Okay. Um, so we have one more friend here, Elihu. And he, he corrects some of the mistakes of the, uh, the other guys. Uh, what can we learn from his approach to dealing with Job's suffering? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I might have mentioned last time, Elihu is one of the more difficult figures. If you read what commentators say about him in Scripture, you wonder if they're talking in their commentaries and their works. You wonder if they're talking about the same man. Everything from pretty good to just a complete buffoon who doesn't even deserve a response. So there's a lot of controversy oh, over this guy. a lot of controversy. I, I do think overall I, I would view him at, at, at very worst as a middle of the road and a little bit more on the positive side. I would say he does seem to be a little bit too much tied to the retribution principle a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless... Several things are, are, are true of him that I think are beyond debate. He has listened a lot to what's going on. The other men really didn't ever listen to Job. In chapter 3, Job had just said, I wish I were dead. Things are bad. That's all they knew, and they launched into a great big program for his recovery that had nothing to do whatsoever with his problems. Mm. Elihu doesn't do that. He's listened to a lot. They say counselors are supposed to listen, ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Proverbs says, he who answers a man- matter before he hears it, it's folly and shame. Elihu's not doing that. And so he's listened a lot, and he's waited to speak. He is somewhat younger, although in this culture, he could be considered young and be 50. So I, I, I don't view him as some 22, you know, 25-year-old, 30-year-old, probably somewhat older. Though, admittedly, his age is not given. Um, But he does seem to speak for the right reasons, and he's humble but firm. It would have been difficult for him, I think, as a younger man to to basically be disagreeing with his his elders. But at least part of what he is saying is very correct. So I think he will, the major advance is he's listened, and he's never going to accuse Job of some theoretical sin in his background. What he is going to accuse Job of is the way Job has misrepresented God and talked rashly about God by the time he gets to chapters 27 through 31. Okay. And I think there is reason to be critical of Job in there, and Elihu is correct to do that. Um, so that's helpful. And, of course, he's mad at everybody. One thing you run... You, Another thing that's very clear, in the first several verses, it talks about how he burns with anger. says it multiple times. So you walk away from the introduction thinking, well, yeah, whatever he is about to say, he's sure upset. <laughs> um, but he's not just upset with Job. 
He's upset with the friends too. So he, on some level, he's got to be considered as disagreeing uh, with them, or at least thinking them deficient in their response to Job. And again, I would view him as at least helpful in this regard. If you've been a pastor or a counselor, you will probably run into many people who have tried to get help from some other source and have not gotten it. They've been not treated correctly, Mm -hmm. and they come to you kind of as a last resort. And so it does, and it's a fine line here. I think most people are kind of like Job in that they might have been totally innocent at first. Somewhere along the line, they probably have done something that misrepresented God or they've disobeyed in some way in their own attempts to try to control the situation. Um, So we would tend to, I think, in our cultural context, go after the bad counsel first. And maybe we have to do that, um, you know, just to, 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 to win the trust of the counselee. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it's interesting how Joe uh, Elihu does not go after the counselors first. He goes after Job first and tries to correct Job's thinking. And that's not an approach that that God deviates from. When God comes, it's ultimate. It's it's crystal clear at the end. He is very upset with the friends. He's they've been fools. Nonetheless, he questions Job first, doesn't he? And um, so I suppose again, as a counseling methodology, you can't deal with the counselor who's out there somewhere. You know, who knows where? Somebody you probably don't even know. All you'll have is the person sitting right in front of you uh, to deal with. And you'll probably have to deal with a mixture of those things. Um, So Elihu, maybe he's a little too harsh with Job. Maybe he should have done something different, but I don't think he's wrong. I I do think he also offers some helpful perspectives, at least to some degree, um, which probably don't finally answer the issue. If Elihu had finally answered the issue, there would have been no need for God to come and speak later. Um, but nonetheless, he does open, he does start to have something more of a developed theology of something of, of suffering. And even if I you, you take a, a, an overall negative view of his theological stance, I think you have to at least concede there's something there that's you know better. And some commentators have have kind of picked up on that as well. So. Um, that's the way I would take Elihu. So I think in, from our perspective, we want to make sure we, we become the better, the best version of Elihu that can possibly be in our preaching, our counseling, or even our informal conversation, while recognizing that the ultimate answer to the, the questions that they have lies with God himself. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to ultimately do for them what needs to be done. Yeah. And we'll we'll get to that in the mm-hmm. next couple of weeks, God's answer, and kind of walk through that as well. So that's all for this time. Thanks for your time, and we'll see you for next episode. Okay, thanks again, and I'll look forward to it. Next time on the Central Seminary Podcast. We usually have our own ideas of how God should be doing some something. I don't know what it's like to get old. So he's trying to arrive at a new theological understanding. Okay, this this is this is real and allow yourself to feel that what's going on. 
And I think we misunderstand sometimes what the difference between guilt and shame are. A self-medicating, a case study in meeting your own needs at the expense of God's reputation. The most profound lesson I've learned is, I, I guess it would have to come at the end of the book. I, I'm trying not to tip off too much of what's coming <laughs> next week, but... How did his friend's perspective affect him? You don't feel he is meeting your needs as you would define those needs. Waiting on God is worth the wait. But the truth is, human beings will always come to their limits. Look for our next episode on the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Seminary Podcast. Our mission at Central Seminary is to assist New Testament churches in equipping spiritual leaders for Christ-exalting biblical ministry. Since its founding in 1956, Central Seminary has sought to provide serious students of God's Word with robust theological education as they prepare for ministry. We have many graduates around the world who are serving in countless ways to spread the gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Find out more at our website, centralseminary.edu.